Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everybody. You have found us. This is Dr. Dale on Quail. We appreciate your time to be with us on today's episode, which features a topic of great interest and conversation among the wildlife community, translocation of wild quail. I think it's a topic you're going to greatly enjoy. And to help us with that is our special guest and host, Dr. Dale Rollins. Go ahead, Dr. Dale. Well, thank you, Gary. Yes, we are on location today up in uh, Albany, Texas, Albany being one of the historic quail epicenters in Texas. And um, I'm here today with a special guest, one of my graduate students, Miss Becky Ruziska. Uh, I met Becky back in 2011. She had just completed her master's at Colorado State University and was looking for a job and happened to come out to the research ranch and volunteer for a little while. And I saw what... Uh, what she was capable of, and we uh, got her started. So welcome, Becky. We appreciate you being on our show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Again, I met you in 2011, and as I recall, that was on a uh, project looking at how quail responded to wildfires. So give us just a little history of what happened there. Yeah, that's when I first started working for the Research Foundation. Um, we, had a, we had a project called, well, we called Operation Phoenix, which was... Um, which was right after we had a bunch of large, large-scale wildfires in Texas. Um, if you remember back to 2011, that was the year of the record drought, and um, almost literally the whole state was on fire. Um, and we, in this area, we had a, a study site just about on every major fire there was. So you can imagine it was, it was a pretty large area. I used to tell people that I was working from Breckenridge to Andrews and San Angelo to uh, Aspermont. So... Um, a lot of ground to cover there. Uh, but what we were looking at was how quail recolonized the area following these major wildfires. So um, we were comparing different factors amongst the sites. And uh, amongst those was, uh, was soil type. And that actually ended up being um, one of the most important factors that determined how quail recolonized. And what we found was that the sandy soil sites really... Um, uh, enable the birds to recolonize much faster than the clay loam soils do. And that was probably largely as a result of plants like sand shin oak that you burn off the top and here it comes back with four more. So your the quail weren't without protective cover for a very long period of time like they might have been on a clay loam site. Well then you you, you hung around and we got you involved in a, our biggest project to date in terms of collaborators and effort and that's what we call Operation Idiopathic Decline. Uh, where we studied, uh, we looked at quail from 35 different sites across western Oklahoma and west Texas over a three-year period and looked for various disease agents, parasites, heavy metals, all those kinds of things. Um, what did you, you were heading up one of the trapping teams for that. I th as I recall, you had like seven counties that you were responsible for. As a student, what did you learn from that effort? Uh, well, yeah, I, I was. I worked on the on the southern team, so and then we added the the blue quail uh, trapping team, and so it kind of worked between the two, the the southern trapping and the and the blue quail trapping team. But uh, I got to, um, you know, that project really kind of opened my eyes as to what you know what was uh, the different 
landscapes across Texas. You know, we were staying with different landowners. So a total of, you know, 14, 15 different landowners uh, over the course of that project. And just seeing all their different uh, management styles and their, and their passion for these birds and their passion for the landscape was really eye-opening for me. That was kind of my introduction to, to Texas. Um, and again, uh, your, your opportunity to inter interact with those landowners, which is a skill that not every graduate student has or gets to develop, you did get to develop that. And it was going to play a large part then of your next several years as we start talking about translocation of quail because of the importance of those landowners serving as quail donors for us. We'll delve more into that here in just a second. But you, uh, you got your master's degree at uh, Utah State and uh, working on something that I find very intriguing, and that's uh, basically some of the old factory cues that predators use to find game birds in their nests. So give us a, a short description of what you were doing there at Utah State. Yeah, so my, my master's thesis was on olfactory predator behavior, um, as you said. And and what we were looking at, so we were, we were working on a site that was just adjacent to the Bear River Bird Refuge, um, which is very important duck nesting habitat. And so we were really looking at nesting, nest nest predators. So in that area, it's, it's foxes, skunks, and raccoons. And... Uh, what we wanted to explore was just how these predators respond to changes in the weather, you know, wh whether it's wind speed or different, um, different objects on the landscape that might affect how air flows across the landscape. So, you know, at different, at different wind speeds that might create turbulence, um, which, which can affect a predator's ability to detect scents. So you imagine that that turbulence kind of breaks up a scent plume and makes it harder for a predator to forage. So these are, you know, these are nocturnal predators, mammalian predators, so they're relying on their sense of smell. Um, and so what, you know, what we found is that yes, in, in fact, uh, wind speed, things like wind speed, the landscape features, um, and the, the time of night temperature um, really affect how, when, and where, um, and how many predators are out foraging on any, any given night. I know at the Bob White Brigade, we kind of illustrate how scent travels across the landscape by using a smoke bomb and lighting that smoke bomb and watching it as it begins to tumble with the air currents and so forth. Uh, and, and just an intriguing aspect of quail ecology and nesting ecology uh, that's pretty new on the scene. And uh, we'll delve more into that in another podcast sometime about scent and the origin of scent and how our, our bird dogs uh, locate birds by scent. Uh, after you completed your uh, master's again, you came to work for us, and then after two or three years, uh, you decided to pursue your PhD, so you're kind of in the final throes of that at Colorado State University right now. When do you expect to graduate from up there? Yeah, I'm working on that. I'm trying to graduate this, this fall, um, and so, yeah, working towards that goal. Um, it was more than two or three years. It was more like six years before I went back, but yeah, I... Uh, I finally, I finally bit the bullet and went back uh, starting in 2016. Yeah, forgive my lack of space and time. Uh, as the frog said, time sure is fun when you're having flies. But you were, you kind of came in and helped us with some translocation research, and I think we started that in about 2013, as I recall. And we've done several studies, uh, one of which happened there at the research ranch because uh, we think we lost all of our blue quail in about 2011, and we don't think we had any in 2013, so we brought in a few. So take us through the next two years of that blue quail research there at the research ranch. 
Yeah, so that kind of we've we've since two thousand and thirteen, um, we as in the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation have had this kind of trans overall uh, focus on translocation research, and um, so in two thousand thirteen we kicked it off with a Bob a project on Bob Whites in Stevens in Shackleford County, and also a translocation of blue quail to the research ranch, and so prior to that translocation to the research ranch, our, our blue quail had basically dropped off of every uh, abundance metric that we use. And there's quite a few of them, maybe five or six different metrics of abundance. Um, and so we, we, we figured that they were basically um, locally extinct from, from the, the research ranch. Um, and so in 2013 and 2014, we reintroduced birds. Over those, those two years, it was probably only a total of 88 birds that we, that we released. But those birds performed extraordinarily well. They, they stayed on site, they reproduced, they survived very well, they raised chicks successfully. Um, and so as a result of that, we were actually able to record a, 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 a major population response you know, following that translocation. So we, we saw our population go from, from zero birds to uh, more than 350 birds in less than... than three years post-application. And as a blue quail hunter from way back, I, I was especially thrilled in 2015. I had a game camera set out in the road and was feeding an area, and I got one one photo of 54 blue quail in one photo. So, uh, you know, we measure our success in various ways, but that was good enough to get me excited. So then we uh, we tried it at the Matador. Things didn't work that well up there. What, what's your thoughts? What happened up there? Yeah, on the, the Matador WMA, we, we did a translocation where we moved birds from Midland-Odessa area um, and released them on the Matador. And the birds that, that stayed on site um, actually survived well. The birds, you know, so these were the birds that we were able to monitor because they stayed, they stayed where we released them. They survived well. They reproduced, but there were very few of them. Most of the birds that we released in that study dispersed off-site. And so, you know, one of the factors there was we were testing a hard release versus a soft release. Um, and so those those hard-release birds were really the, the all of them, I mean, literally all of them dispersed off-site. For our listeners, Becky, describe what you mean by a hard release versus a soft release. Oh, yeah, okay. So a, a soft release is when... Um, and, and this is for any any animal species that you might be translocating. So this is this is where you you trap the animal, you capture the animal, you you transport it to the release site, and then you hold it on site in some sort of, of pen um, or you know holding container or something like that. Um, so for our birds, what we use is a commercially available surrogator. You may have heard of them, um, but it's basically just a a plastic four foot by eight foot box that's about two feet high and so we just hold the birds in that um, the, the matador in particular we held them for four weeks prior to release and uh, what we what we think is that this this or I guess I should say the mechanism is that it, it kind of allows the birds to to acclimate to the release site again it was really uns that was one of our unsuccessful efforts up there in the long term at least and I um I often credit, I often tip my cap to Chip Ruthven because, uh, again, when you think about when the Rolling Plains had a lot of blue quail, it was prior to 1988, and the Matador WMA was, like most of the country, was pretty heavily grazed. Uh, 
hats off to Chip. He's done a great job with fire and grazing and really improved the quality of the habitat and maybe made it too good for uh, blue quail. Uh, and so that's why I came up with the idea of, I know some country over in Knox County and those river breaks over there that it doesn't matter if we have five El Nino years in a row, it's still going to be breaky, hard kind of country, which would uh, historically have been um, well occupied by scale quail. So uh, talk about your uh, doctoral research and what we did over in Knox County. Yeah, we our next iteration or our next uh, uh, research avenue, I guess, in this overall translocation initiative has been that Knox County site. Um, and so this was following the, the translocation at the research ranch where we had great success and following the Matador where we had um, not a, not as great success. Um, so, yeah, as, as you say, that, that Knox County area, um, this is the South Fork of the Wichita River, and it's um, it's it's going to have a lot of bare ground no matter how much it rains. Um, and so scaled quail tend to like prefer bare ground. Um, and so this this in combination with the fact that scaled quail had been locally abundant on the site, you know, according to the people that live there, um, the locals, they they've you know remember times in the early 90s where there were thousands and thousands of birds where blue blue quail were very common in the drainage. Um, and so since then, you know, there's been a lot of brush encroachment, um, but fortunately we were able to identify several different landowners, you know, and adjacent landowners. So we were able to identify a very large acreage, um, probably about 100,000 acres, um, or func functionally more than 100,000 acres of land that had been, um, was still rangeland and had been improved um, to kind of, you know, deal with some of that brush encroachment um, and so that's what we that's what we chose for the for our next release site for our next translocation project so just to recap you you went out to uh, points further west I think all the way from Mule Shoe down to Big Lake something like that and captured uh, what 400 birds in each of two years yeah we released uh, about 800 birds total um, and really our our goals with this project were to further refine uh, best management practices for translocating scaled quail. So the two things we wanted to evaluate were the release strategy. So, um, you know, building on that research that we had done at the Matador where we compared hard versus soft release. So we wanted to fine tune that soft release and see, you know, just what is the optimal holding period um, and really give that a comprehensive evalu evaluation. So, um, you know, based on everything that can affect a population, adult survival, you know, nest initiation, nest success, um, all those factors, you know, what, what is our optimal release strategy um, there? And also to assess source population. So there's been a lot, there's been some previous research in Texas, which uh, dealt with bob whites in East Texas. And they, they found in that study, this was back in the early 90s, um, they found that uh, Bob Whites translocated from outside the ecoregion, so outside of that East Texas Piney Woods ecoregion, didn't perform as well as birds that were translocated from within that ecoregion to a new site. Um, and so they, but but they, those birds that they translocated from outside the ecoregion were actually of a different subspecies. They're the, the South Texas uh, Bob Whites. Um, and so what we wanted to do was to test with scaled quail what happens when you translocate birds that are of the native subspecies? So, um, you know, 
or scaled quail. It's the Arizona scaled quail is what the native subspecies is. But you translocate them from a different habitat type. So we wanted to be able to isolate that effect of the source habitat type. Um, and so we, we translocated birds from uh, Midland Odessa area um, and within the Rolling Plains ecoregion as well. And for those of you who are listening in South Texas and you're thinking of the blue quail you have down there in the western part of the Rio Grande Plains, that's the chestnut-bellied subspecies, and it likes heavier brush, whereas the Arizona subspecies prefers more open kinds of grasslands. And Becky, I know you put radio transmitters on, what, roughly 200 hens per year, something like that? Yeah, that's correct. Well, 200 hens total, 100 hens per year. And I can just imagine trying to keep up with 100 hens over a 100,000-acre landscape. I bet there was a lot of... uh, foot a lot of walking involved in trying to keep up with those birds but that's really critical to be able to keep up with them on a regular basis before they get away from you yeah it, it really is because i mean you know if you if you want to be able to capture nesting any sort of nesting activity nest initiation nest success um yeah you really have to stay on top of them and and we we ran hard anyone who knows blue quail knows how much they how much ground they can cover with their feet and uh yeah it's uh it's uh, no different trying to follow them with, uh, with uh, radio telemetry as it is trying to follow them with a shotgun. And radio telemetry in rough country like some of that breaky country is adds another element to uh, being able to keep up with them. But I know you found out some uh, really interesting things, and I'd like to ask you about the nesting ecology of where those blue quail nested. I mean, again, in Bob White world, we're always talking about little blue stem. Uh, that kind of thing. Where did the blue quail, where did you find them nesting at in that habitat? Well, yeah, for for our birds in Knox County, I mean, you can just forget everything you know about bobwhite nesting ecology because um, out of those 200 hens I had, I think we had about 75 nests initiated um, that we were able to observe. And I had one bird that nested in what you would think of as a traditional, um, you know, clump uh, you know, uh, bunch grass nesting cover. Um, the rest of the birds were nesting in, in things like just under a rock, you know, on just on bare ground that they, little hollow depression, um, under a rock on a cliffside, um, under a bare juniper limb on bare dirt, um, and, and quite frequently, um, almost in every case, it was immediately associated with some sort of shrub, whether it was juniper or mesquite, um, or even uh, in, in that area, even black dahlia was another nesting substrate that they used. I know one other little factoid from your study was uh, some of the distances that some of your radio marked hens moved. Describe some of those. Yeah, we, <laughs> we had quite a few um, distances. And luckily, I mean, we were able, we, we were able to, to keep up with them. I say we had, we had quite a few long distance movers. Um, one hen in, in particular, um, that was especially memorable to me. This, this, so this hen was released um, on the south side of the river drainage, and she went about six kilometers due north. And this was, you know, a few couple weeks post release. Um, and we followed her up there. We were able to keep track of her. She initiated a nest, hatched the nest, raised chicks to be about four to five weeks old, um, and then brought those chicks all the way back to the release site over the course of a night and I'll tell you that I know that because I went out there and I I found the bird in her her you know area where she had been six kilometers north of the the site I found her you know sometime in the afternoon 
And then I went back up there in the morning to get another location on her and I couldn't find her. And I just happened to leave my, my uh, receiver on with the, with the antenna um, as I drove back to the headquarters. And when I got back to the release site, I picked her up on the antenna inadvertently. Um, and sure enough, there she was uh, right back at the release site with all of her chicks uh, in tow. That's pretty incredible, and again, one of just one of the opportunity, opportunistic uh, finds, if you will, involved in using radio telemetry. I often tell uh, people that quail research can be divided into two eras. One is BT, before telemetry, and that was prior to about the early 90s, and then AT, after telemetry, from the 1990s on to the present day. And, and our understanding of Bob White and all the game birds has changed a lot with the use of the radio telemetry. Uh, Becky, I know that also as part of your effort or some associated research, you're using some pretty high-tech, what I'd call CSI kind of work on uh, de using DNA to look at the blue quail that we translocated to the research ranch. Uh, and tell us why you're studying the DNA of those birds. Yeah, so we, um, we in, in 2013, we we collected genetic samples, so this is just uh, removing a few breast feathers. Um, and actually, we've done that for every translocation that we've that we've initiated, and with the thought that, you know, maybe someday we'll be able to get some funding to be able to look at this this genetic data, um, and actually actually be able to establish the parentage of of the birds in any any successive population that we might establish, you know, via this this translocation. Um, and so in 2017, we were fortunate enough to get another grant from the Reversing the Quail Decline Initiative um, to fund some of this work. And so we went back to our genetic samples that we took from the scaled quail we released on the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch. Um, and then we compared that to feather samples that we had collected you know, in, in successive years post-release from the resident population. Um, and really what we were trying to do is just establish the parentage of those birds. So, so we're able to get from those feather samples um, a pedigree, basically, you know, what, and follow the lineage of those birds um, as the population grows. And that has more than just um, scientific interest, I guess, about who's breeding whom kind of thing. But it's also one way that we, we will use, we hope to use, as far as evaluating our success because again uh, our skeptics would say how do you know that response you saw at the research ranch wasn't from birds that came in from five miles away even though we don't think they occurred there but how are we using that DNA or what kind of a tool can it be to gauge the effectiveness of these translocation efforts? Yeah I think it's a it's a powerful tool and it's it's kind of another it's just an, another metric that we can use to as, as, assess success of a translocation. So, you know, as I mentioned, that 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 rolling our, our translocation to the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch um, was was really successful in terms of the population response. But as you mentioned, like the the question that we get quite often is, well, how do you know that the the response that you saw was a result of your translocation? Um, you know, how do you know that had you not done the translocation, how do you know that you wouldn't have seen the same population response? Um, and so this, this genetic work kind of just adds some more evidence to that, 
um, because we're able to say that uh, I, I can't give you any definitive results of the genetic work right now, but um, we're, we're able to say that the birds that are there now on the research ranch are descended from birds that we translocated and released there. Okay, let's, uh, let's zoom out a little bit and, and talk about translocation in a more general sense because translocation in the Bob White world right now is really a white-hot topic and has been over the last four or five years, and that uh, lends itself uh, a lot, to a large degree of some of the successes they've had down at Tall Timbers Research Station and, and moving birds to the Carolinas and even on up to New Jersey. So you and I were co-authors on a white paper a couple of years ago about translocation as a tool in quail restoration but not everybody's a believer and so some of our skeptics would argue that instead of translocation we ought to be just working more and more on habitat and on the concept of if you build it they will come where does translocation fit in to that type of uh, mentality about we're going to build it and we're hoping the quail show up well i you know i mean I have to start off every conversation like this by saying, yes, we need habitat. Like the, the habitat absolutely has to be there. Um, and it has to be there in, in large enough quantities and, and quality. Um, but, you know, when we're, we're dealing with a large amount of habitat fragmentation, not just in the state of Texas, but, you know, I mean, uh, worldwide, even if you want to go that large. Um, but habitat fragmentation is something that kind of tends to go in only in, in one direction. In other words, you know, our habitats are only getting more fragmented. And every time you kind of make those changes to the landscape, it's preventing natural dispersal. So this is, goes for any species, not just quail, but you're, you're making it harder for species to disperse. Um, and so if you're talking about a few acres, it's probably not a big deal. Um, you know, when you start talking hundreds of thousands of acres of conversion into other uses or you know other other cover types besides rangelands um, you're probably having an impact and so especially with a boom and bust species such as quail um, you know that that natural dispersal is is an important part of how they um, naturally maintain populations you know on a landscape level and so I think that translocation can really kind of fit in um, to that that overall landscape management of quail because it's it's a really just a mechanical mechanism for dispersal and it's also an incentive for landowners you know if we have the tools if we have the capability to be able to translocate birds and reestablish population it gives landowners a real incentive to invest in the habitat um, invest in making those improvements um, to be able to receive um, population and I always encourage landowners, especially in that cross timbers areas, let's say from uh, Albany East back to uh, I-35, uh, to zoom in using Google Earth, zoom in on their property, and they may say, I've got two sections of really good looking quail country. And I say, well, you may have. Now zoom out and see what it looks like. See what's happened to your neighboring properties. And most of the time, highly fragmented habitat. Uh, we're doing a project currently over in Erath County in that kind of habitat with a kind of an island of quail habitat and having moderate success at this point in time. We'll, we'll talk about that at some other point in time. Uh, we want to thank the funders for our research. Uh, those would include several chapters of Quail Coalition, including Park City's Quail, 
Cross Timbers Quail Coalition and the Big Covey chapter up in uh, Wichita Falls. Some of the landowners kicked in substantial amounts of money. And then the uh, Texas A&M uh, Extension Services, AgriLife Extension Services, reversing the decline of quail was a major funder for this project. We certainly want to thank all those. And Becky, we also, we couldn't, you know, we couldn't do it without the money, but we couldn't do it without the quail. So what would you say to those quail donors out in Big Lake and Odessa and out in that part of the world? Oh, man, we owe, we owe them so much. Uh, the, you know, it, there's really no incentive for people to give us quail. You know, I mean, we're, we're removing quail off of their property and taking them to someone else who's going to benefit from having that enjoyment. Um, so there's just really no incentive for them to do that other than just a love of the resource itself, you know, and, a, and a, just a feeling of wanting to, to uh, give back and in terms of conservation of the species, um, of the, the hunting heritage, um, and all that. And so we're just so, we're just so grateful, um, for all of our, our Covey donors, um, as we call them. All right. Thank you, Becky. And indeed we are indebted to those, uh, quail donors and we, 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 uh, want to continue to cultivate those individuals because we have several other translocation projects that'll be starting uh, next year and for both bobwhite and scale quail. So if you have interest in being a quail donor, please contact me, D. Rollins, at quailresearch.org, and uh, let us tell you what would be involved with that. But, uh, Becky, we uh, certainly appreciate your efforts. It's been a pleasure to have worked with you over the last 10 years. Wish you the best of luck in completing your Ph.D., and I know that you, uh, you've you got all the skills uh, present there to be a great asset to somebody. I hope it's the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation when we get through. It seems like we've had you for a good part of your life, but uh, you've got a lot of skills that are um, highly admirable. Uh, your, your knowledge of statistics is just uh, a great bonus for anybody that's wanting to work in the research world. And then your whole attitude and your, your can-do-it attitude, I, that's what's impressed me a lot about you. So I just want to thank you, and I appreciate you showing up out there that, that day as a volunteer because it's been a productive relationship ever since then. Uh, Gary, we're uh, winding it down up here in Albany, and we'll turn it back over to you. Thank you so much, Dr. Rollins. Uh, interesting topic, I think of great interest to our community. Uh, always interesting to learn about some of these new details. Thank you for the time and, and the interview for sure. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau thanking you for being with us today. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If there's previous episodes of Dr. Dale on quail you'd like to access and, and hear, please go to quailresearch.org. That's the website of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation. You'll find past episodes of our podcast there, as well as great information about the research and efforts of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation with Dr. Rollins and his team doing great work in Fisher County. Until next time, we appreciate your time. We appreciate the interest you have in quail in Texas. I'm Gary Joyner. Thank you so much. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.